It's wonderful to be able to be here today. The appreciation, it certainly fills our heart to understand that in the midst of trials and challenges, we can assemble in a way that we find written and recorded in the Word of God and to not only be comforted by that, but to rest assured that the things we do in accordance with the Word of God pleasing to Him and certainly will be a blessing to us as well. As mentioned earlier already today, we, we know, of course, we continue to be in, the, in some unusual times. And, and yet as we open the unchanging Word of God, 1 Peter 1.25, how great it is to know that the anchor never changes. Today, I would invite you to consider with me a lesson I've entitled, Identifying the Gospel. In fact, this opening slide is probably one that I hope will set us in motion in the following way. The word gospel, at least in the confines of a place like this, is pretty common. We're familiar with the word gospel. In fact, we often use it in some rather familiar ways. We speak about a gospel meeting. We may well refer to a gospel song. Other times, we may in fact make reference to gospel singings. Sometimes folks will refer to gospel preaching. I think none of us would really ask much of a question about the usage of the word gospel in any of those contexts. But here is a very good question. What exactly is the gospel? How would you and I answer that? I hope today, as you and I will turn in the Word of God, we'll just let the Bible answer this for us. Not only will we have an interesting discussion relative to it, but before we're done, we'll actually have the biblical answer as well. But as we begin, could I at least assert that I've tried to divide the lesson into two parts. Part one, the gospel message, part number one. The word gospel itself rather often occurs in the Word of God. Every single occurrence in the English, at least, in the New Testament, is such that we find the total number at 104. So you and I, quite frankly, could look at every verse, highlight the nature of what's taught, put that information together, and we would have an answer. That's what we're going to attempt to do today, but we'll need not look at all 104 verses. May I suggest there are some initial thoughts that are very clearly understandable. The original word, the Greek word, if you please, it's translated gospel. It literally meant good news, glad tidings, sweet message, no doubt it was something positive, it was something very encouraging, it was good. I might suggest to you that there's a lot of potentially good news. Now, I admit the world doesn't always offer so much of it, but you and I know in our lives it's not unusual to be faced with good news. The healthy birth of a child, or a grandchild as the case may be, that's good news. And there's reason for celebration you can think of other instances in life. Is that the kind of gospel the Bible's talking about? Is that an, appro an appropriate way to use that terminology? Let's start this journey. At the bottom of that slide, I have tried to compile a few verses that will highlight some truths about the gospel. Let's step through these one by one and begin to assimilate an appreciation for how the Bible employs this term. First of all, the gospel. It is a message so good and so wonderful that it is to be heralded, it's to be preached worldwide. Jesus Himself said that in Mark 14, 9. 
and echoed in that very famous passage in Mark 16, verse 15. Go into all the world, he said, and preach the gospel to every creature. This is a message so terrific that everybody needs to hear it. That's how exciting and wonderful it is. May we add this to that? Not only is it that message that is so wonderfully good that way, it involves the kingdom. I say that because that's the description the Word of God presents. I've asked you to consider Matthew 4.23 as well as Matthew 24.14. Among other places, but those two at least highlight it's the gospel of the kingdom. Did you note the prepositional phrase? There's our word gospel, but then it's qualified by this phrase, of the kingdom. The message that it identifies, the glorious goodness of it, will in some way connect to and identify the kingdom. We'll have more to say about that later. Notice what else follows rather quickly. Not only is it so good to be preached worldwide, and not only does it involve the kingdom, this is a message from God. I've asked you to consider this one passage, but others might be listed. Paul said to the Thessalonian church, I preached the gospel of God. In other words, it wasn't a message that he dreamed up, nor was it of human origination. This is a message from heaven. It's God's given it. And so this gospel, no wonder it's so wonderful. It's of, it's of God. It centers on Jesus Christ the gospel of Christ. Romans 15, 19. But maybe that's not the most famous. In Romans 1, 16, and we'll notice this again in just a moment, but would you notice it with me in passing? I'm not ashamed of what, Paul? The gospel of Christ. The good news attached to and surrounding the nature of the Christ. So far we've learned four things. This gospel is so wonderful to preach it worldwide. This gospel is a message that centers on the kingdom. It is of God, and it, of course, will surround the nature of the Christ. Let's read further. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, and this one, this one, is certainly somewhat challenging. Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. Let me invite you to consider, though we, or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you. Let him be accursed. Now the next verse goes on to say something very similar. But the point is easily to be made, isn't it? The gospel is unique. It is absolutely exclusive. There is no other. In fact, anything that's done to change it perverts it. This message, you see, is never to be tampered with. This good news, as the Bible identifies it, is absolutely that which cannot be substituted. There's only one. Now, so far, we've learned a number of things about the gospel. Wouldn't you agree? It's of God. It centers on Christ. It connects to the kingdom. It's so wonderful to preach it worldwide. I'd still like to know what is it. We've learned a lot about it. One last thing. It presents God's message related to salvation from sin. I mentioned that a moment ago, but let's revisit Romans 1. 
In verses 14, 15, and 16, Paul highlighted to the church at Rome that he was a debtor to preach the gospel. He was, in fact, rather excited to preach it, and this is the reason he gave. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul, as he identified the gospel, he said, It is the means of revealing God's righteousness. And not only that, it is the message unto salvation. We can begin to see why it's such a great message. We can begin to see why it needs to be preached worldwide. I would still offer this thought. Though we've learned much about it, we still don't exactly know what it is. It's a message involving a lot of things. Next slide. And in this next slide, I would quickly rehearse that that listing we just mentioned, as wonderful as it is, it still hasn't told us what the gospel is. Let's try to unfold that rather quickly this way. You may want to revisit that text that was read in our hearing for the lesson text this morning, read in 1 Corinthians 15. This passage will be the first that identifies our immediate answer to the question. May I read it again? Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. May we pause to note, Paul says, Corinthians, I'm declaring to you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. Paul said, here's the gospel, and he goes on to say it like this, By which also you're saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Now so far, that says a lot of things familiar to us. Notice again, the gospel connects to salvation, just like we learned a moment ago. He said that this is what he had preached, which is the idea that we first noted to preach it worldwide. But now verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. May I pause a moment. Paul had just said, I'm preaching the gospel. This gospel was delivered, and now this is what it is. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. As Paul has identified the gospel, he says this is what it is. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Note again the connection in language that he made. I preach the gospel, that which was delivered to me, but yet that entity is this. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. It seems as if we have finally learned what the gospel is. It is that powerful and singular and exclusive message connected to the death of Christ, the subsequent burial of His body, and His resurrection on the third day. Now you would have every right to pause and say, but what's so great about that? Didn't the word gospel mean good news? Did you notice Paul told us what's so good about it? May I call your attention to verse 3? It says, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died, next three words, for our sins. 
In other words, He accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. It was for our sins that He did this. You and I as sinners, you see, are separated from God. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 reminds us that's what sin does. And isn't it true? The wages of sin is death, invariably and always. Romans 6, 23. And yet, for our sins, He died. For our sins, He took our place. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. To borrow the words of 1 Peter 2, 21-23. Oh, what good news that is. But as you can quickly see on that slide, all of that leads us to at least an element of conclusion. So far, we have learned then the gospel is that singular message involving the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It is to be preached worldwide. It will connect to the kingdom as we shall shortly see. It certainly is of God and sinners on Christ. And it is through this message the salvation from sin is to be known. Many a sermon ends at this point, having identified, at least for the mind of some, what the gospel is. But as that slide closes, I'd like to challenge all of us this way. Among those 104 occurrences of the word gospel, there are some other verses that pose a challenge. They pose for us something that needs to yet be uncovered. Let me transition to the next slide and ask you, I wonder what these verses mean. So far, having identified the gospel, which seems like such a wonderful truth, what then would we make of verses like these? Romans 10 verse 16. Paul, in characterizing some in that region in time, he said, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Are you confused? For isn't it true in light of the things we've learned so far in the lesson today, doesn't it appear as if the gospel is a set of facts to be believed? I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that His body was buried. I believe that He rose again the third day. And I believe salvation from sin is had through Him. Doesn't it seem as if all of this connects to a set of truths that I'm just supposed to believe? But yet Paul, in Romans 10, 16, characterized some who had not obeyed the gospel. Notice it wasn't just something to be mentally believed. Something had to connect by way of obedience. That isn't all. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7, 8, and 9, language that in fact is somewhat similar. Listen to this one. Writing to that congregation in Thessalonica, Paul had these resounding words to say, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire with His mighty angels, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. What is this? Facts are just things to be believed. And we all believe Jesus died. We all believe that He rose again. We all believe he, that His body had been buried. And yet... 
not only to the church at Rome, but now to the church in Thessalonica, the gospel also has to be obeyed. Question, am I supposed to die, be buried, and resurrected on the third day like Jesus? If so, I'm doomed. (laughs) I know I am, and you are too. If to say that we have to obey the gospel means we have to do exactly what the Lord did, looks like we're in an unwinnable position. One more passage before we try to answer this, this issue. 1 Peter 4, verse 17. It may well be that this one highlights the power of this consideration as much as any other. It is an issue that will in fact lead us right into a powerful consideration of an answer in just a moment. In 1 Peter 4, verse 17, these unforgettable words are found. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? I would suggest many things might be drawn out of that passage. A whole sermon could easily be preached with it. But let's just make a few comments, and then, and then, let's move to the last part of our lesson today. As we step through that 17th verse, notice again it says that judgment is coming. But it says that this judgment will begin at the house of God. Now, you and I know from other passages, the house of God's the church. But did you notice that he said, at us? So you and I, us, we are the church. That's comforting. But he goes on to say this. If that be the case, what about those who do not obey the gospel? That quickly teaches us one other thing, that you and I, as the us in that verse, as those constituting the house of God, we are those who have obeyed the gospel. Whatever we recognize that means, we've done it. Isn't that comforting? If you're a Christian, you've obeyed the gospel. By the same token, if you're not a Christian, you have not obeyed it. And you're not a member of the house of God. And you'll notice judgment is a very serious and very careful matter for you to consider. With all of that said, we've now seen three verses that highlight the gospel is not merely a set of facts to be believed. It is a set of commands also to be obeyed. And if we fail at the latter, we will have to, of course, face in a very regretful way that sore judgment. At this point, let's put it all together. Having said that, look at the bottom. Paul helps us answer this. It isn't merely my idea. Thankfully, inspiration has given us the answer. What is the gospel? Let's go back to the book of Romans. In Romans, the sixth chapter, we will have the answer to our question. We will have it presented for us in a way that I think will pull it all together, not only beautifully, but rather easily. In the sixth chapter of Romans, may I direct your attention first to verse number 17. But God be thanked, that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin. 
ye became the servants of righteousness. The movement through that passage is so enlivening. There was a time, Paul told the Romans, you are the servants of sin. In that walk of life and in that state, you were the servants of sin. But he quickly says, you obeyed something. You obey the form of doctrine. Please take note of that word form. In other places of the New Testament, that word means pattern. Example, the Romans did something that was a pattern of exactly what Jesus had done. Remember, we've already learned that the gospel connects to salvation from sin. The Romans had done something. That was an, a pattern, an example, a likeness, a similitude, if you please, to that which the Lord Himself had done because Paul uses the word form, the form of doctrine which they had received. At this point, aren't we each getting a bit excited? We've already learned if the gospel is literally and only the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and yet it's something to be obeyed, you and I cannot do that because Christ was raised with the power of God on the third day. But we've now learned it wasn't that the Romans identically and exactly did the literal thing, but they had done something that was a form, a pattern, a likeness. What had they done? Go back to the opening verses of Romans 6. He tells us what they did. And on this next slide, I've tried to lay it out like this. With our understanding that the word form means pattern, that which is to be copied, what is it the Romans did? What is it that they did in obedience to that doctrine that they had received? It is with that in mind, these verses read like this. May I start in verse 3? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Here it is, isn't it? You and I, as we obey the gospel, we reenact those things that are a pattern of what the Lord did. What did the Lord do? We've already learned. The gospel is His death, His burial, His resurrection. When you and I obey the gospel, we die to sin. Didn't Paul say that here? If we need it echoed again, look at verse 12 of the same chapter. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. In other words, you and I have become dead to sin. As that old man of sin has died, what did he say in verse number 4? A burial takes place. The connection is beautiful, isn't it? The old man of sin has died. You bury that which is dead. And so, in the watery grave of baptism, according to verse 4, that old man of sin is buried. All that's left is a resurrection. Did you note verse 5? For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. And that thought is echoed in verse number 4, in which mention is made of 
a coming forth unto a newness of life. So it's true that as you and I appreciate the wonderful message of the gospel, that death of Christ for our sins, the consequent burial of His lifeless body, the resurrection through the power of God on day number three. But then, in the form or likeness to that, you and I, in obedience to the gospel, must reenact it. And therefore, in baptism, the old man of sin has died. And therefore, a burial takes place. Consequently, following that is then a resurrection to life. That person who thus, as we noted earlier, in obedience to the gospel, we are the house of God. We are those who thus have committed our life in fullness to the full message of the gospel truth. You'll notice then that as you close that slide with me, that newness of life, that characteristic life has been unfolded. What is the gospel? Like I said, many a sermon likely would have ended at the end of part one. Certainly most all denominational sermons would. And yet we've learned that in obedience to the gospel, these other truths not only must be appreciated, but they must be acted upon. With that said, this final slide is a conclusion slide, and it looks like this. If I may summarize, what is the gospel? As often as we use that word, I hope we've at least been reminded the Word of God uses it very clearly and also in a very interesting way. It's true, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the implication for us is in order to be a member of the house of God, the household of faith, we must obey that gospel. And again, appreciate that haunting question that Peter asked. If judgment first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? Now, it's true enough that even once we initially obey the gospel, of course, the challenge is we will have been resurrected to a newness in life, and we're charged to live faithfully to that gospel message. If you and I fail at that, and in fact choose to live in a habitual way in sin, we have thus forfeited our connection to the gospel. That death of Christ is now something which we've trampled over the nature of Christ's blood, Hebrews 10.26. It might be in this audience today, in this assembly of individuals, there are those who have never yet obeyed the gospel. You've reached the age of knowing wrong from right. You know that Christ died on the cross for you. And I feel sure you know full well if you were to die this afternoon where you'd spend eternity. Why do you wait? The Son of God died that you might be saved from sin. And the obedience of that gospel, as we've learned today, will involve baptism, but the prerequisites to that are these. You must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. What a day of rejoicing if that is accomplished. What a day of celebration. All of eternity for you will have been changed. But may I say, if you have obeyed the gospel, there was a time in life when you did those things. And as such, Christ added you to His kingdom. You became a member of the church, Acts 2.47. 
But in the days since then, times have come to where maybe the church hasn't meant much to you. You may remember early on we learned it's the gospel of the kingdom. The church is the kingdom of God, Matthew 16, 19. If the church hasn't been important to you, you need to make that right. You need to repent of those kind of errors, make confession of them, 1 John 1, verse 9, and rest assured that you'll be forgiven. And you can again live in full harmony to that gospel. If there would be anybody in this assembly today of whom that we could offer help or assistance, we'd be delighted to do it. This song of encouragement has been selected. If this study of the gospel has been sufficiently encouraging in such a way that it's helped us to understand it and to make application, what a great blessing God's Word on this topic has been. If at this point there would be one or more that would wish to come, we'd like to offer this invitation to the gospel of Christ while together we stand and while we sing.